winner of the Cannes Director's Fortnite Award for Best Film, Akiara is the stunning new thriller from acclaimed Italian director Jonas Carpignano. When her father goes missing, 16-year-old Chiara takes it upon herself to track him down at all costs. But as Chiara gets closer to the truth and the crime syndicates that control her city, she is forced to decide how far she is willing to go. Critics call the film an original and powerful coming-of-age story. Akiara opens exclusively in theaters starting May 27th. More details at cinemamadeinitaly.com. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish, co-deputy editor of Film Comment, and I'm calling in from the sunny shores of Cannes. Over the course of the 2022 festival, as news of standing ovations and walkouts, raves and pans, spit takes and hot takes flood the feed, the Film Comment crew will be reporting on all the cinematic goings-on at the Crosset with dispatches, interviews and podcasts. So make sure to subscribe to both the Film Comment letter and podcast and keep tuning in every day for more. Welcome to another episode of Film Comments Can Podcast. The festival is nearing its close, but the podcast machine grinds on. And today I'm joined by two very special guests, very special friends of the pod, who I will ask them to introduce themselves. Miriam? Um, I'm Miriam Bale. Um, I am here as a writer for W Magazine and also a programmer for the Indie Memphis Film Festival. And Miriam helped us close out our Cannes coverage last year, so it's really nice to do this again with you. Absolutely. It's so nice to be back. And so nice to be here with Mark Ash, my old friend and former editor. And so who is Mark Ash? Hi there. Hello, all of you Film Comment Podcast listeners. I am uh, Mark Ash, a frequent uh, film contributor to and reader of Film Comment magazine, uh, covering the festival here uh, for Inside Hook, Little White Lies, and various other cleverly named wonderful publications. And I'm very happy to be here on, I believe, my maiden appearance on the film comment podcast. It is? I didn't realize that. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know. I, I somehow didn't realize <laughs> I, you that. You just never invited me before. Oh, God, stop it. Uh, well, congrats on your debut. And if you're listening to this, uh, Mark's interview with Christian Munju will likely already be out on the film comment letter. So make sure to go read that as well. So how has your can experience been? Like, I just, I, I've been starting with that with every guest because it's so interesting to hear, like, different, the the many parallel lives you can lead at Cannes. Yeah, um, well, I think I talked a little bit about it. Um, you know, I'm balancing writing and programming, which yeah. is strange because they're very different audiences, W Magazine and Indie Memphis Film Festival. But right. that's in, um, I think it's been, for me, it's... Uh, it's a return to um, my first can was only in I think 2014 or 2015, and it was seeing the highlight was seeing Maps to the Stars, and it was an experience that was just um, wonderful because it was I think it was booed a bit, and I think every a lot of people hated it except for a few friends and some French critics, which is exactly what you want at Cannes. <laughs> and so, um, uh, so coming back to his first film since then just feels like a real, you know, full mm. circle moment. So, yeah. um, so it's been good. How about you, Mark? This has been this. My first can was last year in the sort of strange, underattended July can, um, which I thought was so 
glamorous and overwhelming and um, the sort of like peak of film culture and now seems very quaint because there are there are so many more yachts here than there were last year. <laughs> there are so many more money launderers trying to scare, trying to like find a weird straight to DVD movie to sink money into. <laughs> there are so many more of my friends, um, including me, including you. Mm. Uh, Miriam was here last year. And so I think, so this has been really sort of overwhelming all over again. Um, in a good, in a, in a good, in a good way. The movies haven't really been as good, but then we had yeah, two years of cinema to to pick through for last year, and yeah. I think we're getting to sort of we're we're sort of in the delayed supply side shock now. Yeah, and I mean now there's a lot still to come. Claire Denis, Kelly Reicher, Elvis, know. Elvis. Yes, tune in tomorrow uh, to the Film Comment podcast to hear about Elvis, uh, Albert Sarah, Albert Sarah. Competition, of course, that's a fiction. Yeah, so it did seem like a backloaded festival. So I still, you know, I'm still. Uh, very hopeful about the next few days. Okay, so y we have both of you here, yeah. which means that we must talk about himbos. Yes, well, this is something Mark and I have been wanting to talk about because um, Mark wrote a wonderful article recently in Animus magazine um, about himbos, and I loved it and shared it, but I also feel that it was somewhat theoretical, as was the podcast that you mentioned in it. And I, for one, have been deep in the field of himbos and know, know the territory. The I am an aficionado yeah. in, in real life. Like the podcast couldn't find any. There are plenty. Um, and, um, and so I have some differences. Uh, I don't think, um, and I feel like Mark and I actually were sitting next to each other for Triangle of Sadness. And, and um, as soon as it started, I thought, maybe this, you know, male models, maybe we'll get the himbo content that we wanted. Maybe this will be himbo island. And it was. It was himbo island. <laughs> um, we can just to set aside um, Ruben Ostlin's sort of bozo mode uh, class satire. Um, we can, <laughs> I think, I think Harris Dickinson is a really interesting performance in that because he is like, he makes intelligent career choices. He has positioned himself as this sort of thoughtful hunk. Um, and I think, but also has like, but is also a sort of like. He looks like a model. He's a, he has, yeah, yeah, he's like, he's a, he's a perfect twink. And so putting him into this sort of mode where he is rendered, all, where all of the things that give him value in society suddenly make him useless except for his body. And this is the sort of, the this, this film sort of, his character arc in the film is sort of that he his youth and his his youth is, his youth and beauty are apparently already fading by the standards of the fashion industry, which is a fairly brutal verdict, uh, and so is already beginning to sort of question what he is for if he's um, if he's no if he's no longer a commodify as as much of a hot commodity as he used to be, and so getting onto this island in which everyone is sort of stripped of what gave them value in the world up to that point he sort of finds himself again as this object of desire and feels conflicted about being good for just one thing but see my counter is that i don't think he feels conflicted hmm. you know i don't feel think he feels conflicted about just being good for one thing i think that he very cannily uses it to his advantage i mean he initiates mm -hmm. his own 
uh, I wouldn't want to say exploitation in this case, his own use by by the you know a new matriarch the the woman the filipino uh caretaker who becomes a matriarch of this island and so there's a wiliness to him that to me takes away from the himbo appeal well, well he's he's a flirt and that's also part of like what he's when he sort of is making blinky pouty faces at her from across the campfire with the light sort of flickering on his face it's a very sort of um He's posing, and I think that y- y- there is a certain there is gu- there is sort of guilt that he is processing through this because he's cheating on his girlfriend or his Instagram girlfriend. Um, but what's the difference really in this modern world? Nothing, according to mm, Ruben Ostlund. Mark, your girlfriend might be listening to this. <laughs> God, I hope not. And it, she doesn't even like movies. So, um, so we will have so to be sort of posing and flirting and presenting himself he feels sort of guilty about selling him about sort of selling her out a little bit but also i think that there is just a certain cynicism i think that he is submitting to in in selling himself and i think it's interesting because like the appeal of the himbo in some ways and the appeal of like watching harris dickinson in some ways is that he is this beautiful vessel that um that we can project things onto and for him to sort of to sort of challenge notions of his own obsolescence and settle for being this beautiful object in this sort of um, brutally transactional society. But don't you think from the very beginning of the movie, he is aware of his own status as an object? Um, well, no, because he's also using Yaya, his girlfriend, as an object. And no, he's very conflicted in the beginning, and he's not quite comfortable in the himbo role in the beginning he and this is where i beg to differ for mark's article and some other things a himbo is not a feminist of course a himbo is not a himbo is not a feminist and he's trying to reckon with like societal kind of things but a himbo is often feminized and like and they're objectified and that's where the equality comes from and so um you know there's that scene with yaya and and she says what are you thinking of he's like I'm not thinking, just chilling, you know, and, and he is thinking and he's thinking about equality and his, he's very, but once they're on the island, it's very pure. And what he says is very pure, like to his new sort of matriarchal, um, you know, uh, like, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, whatever you call it, his girlfriend. And, and she says, you know, spoiler, if anyone's listening, she says that line, why you're beautiful is when you've, you said, I love you. You give me fish, and yeah. and she just you know it's very pure, and that's why him. That's himbos, so funny because I did not are... read that as pure at all. I read that not as like I love you. It's like I make love to you, and you give me fish. It's not pure as in I love you. It's pure as in it's um it's honest and surprising, and that's the appeal well, of to, a himbo. To me, it's like very canny. It's very cunning. It's look. I will make love to you and you give me fish and we understand each other's roles. Maybe love is canny. Maybe there's ideas of transactional love. They don't love each other. Well, that's what I'm saying. I'm yeah. saying that it's like, it's quite pure. It's like beyond, it's more pure than love. Well, it's that's what I, well, what, I, what I think is pure about it is that the himbo is the sort of beautiful empty vessel that we can project an idea that all these conflicts that we have about the role of, about gender roles and like, and, problematic masculinity have been sort of resolved which is not which I don't think is necessarily true and this is something that I talk about in the article but there is a certain political machination in allowing yourself to be perceived as an object emptied of meaning and it's interesting that in the that both the first and third 
chapter of the film, he's on. The, he's at the restaurant with Yaya and arguing about who get, who picks up the check. And by the time all those conflicts about food and gender roles have been definitively settled in the third act, I love you, you give me fish. The, the himbo is a figure of compliance, I think, above all else. Mm-hmm. And so that's mm-hmm. what makes, um, and that's what I think this film shows really well. I disagree. I, I think do the himbo, too. I, I do too. I think the himbo is, um, I think there's just a purity. There's yeah, just there, like it's a, a figure of obliviousness to me. Yes, but and also but is that because obliviousness of that, true? it's actually quite... Um, I think himbos are actually quite brilliant in that they say these surprising things because they're not overthinking. And like, and I will say, and, and I found that in real life um, and why they're so entertaining, but also in fiction, I think it takes a really smart actor to play a himbo. And, you know, Channing Tatum, he's been come, uh, he's, he's King represented himbos. himbos, but I, I don't, you know, I think that he's kind of doing something a little bit different, like the classic himbo performances, um, uh, like Warren Beatty is so good at it and, and Shampoo. Um, Owen Wilson is so good at playing a himbo. Um, uh, and Harris Dickinson is so good. Like he's he's a smart actor and it takes a smart actor to play mm. someone. Um, I also just want to say beyond the himbo, um, I, like your previous guest, was really surprised that I liked this film so much because I hadn't liked... Um, his pre, I did not like the square at all. I was a little bit skeptical of, um, force majeure and, and, um, but this one really hit a sweet spot for me beyond the himbo in that there were these pre-code movies, um, so many pre-code movies during the depression about rich people that get stuck on an island. Um, Mm. there's like, uh, Leo McCary's Let's Go Native and um, Bird of Paradise by um, King Vidor. And I, I love these films. I try to see them all. And I feel like this movie, you know, it's the right time uh, to have to return back to this format. And of course, that's also reminded me of Swept Away, um, Lena Wertmuller's and, and, and The Ship Sails On, mm-hmm. Fellini. And, and I just loved how full on it went. I just thought it was very surprised to be, to, um, to to I was surprised to like it so much and I think what all of what we're discussing is I think you know in his previous films what he's he's kind of kind of skirted around gender issues and I think um this one is less resolved and so more interesting yeah I mean uh you know we already talked about it on the last podcast so I don't want to necessarily rehash my my views about it I do feel that the last chapter that you know, it's interesting that for you, the resolution of those conflicts is the apex of or the end of the uh, kind of himbo transformation. But that narratively is what kind of takes the sting of the movie away for me is that it becomes these ideas that feel more complex at the start become sort of pat. Uh, by the end, including about gender, it becomes this like sort of simplistic reversal that I think takes away from the, the thorniness of the earlier parts of the movie where there is sort of this, I wouldn't call it class critique per se. I think it's more of like a parody of um, class dynamics. I don't think there is necessarily critique there, but there is room for critique in that parody, in that absurdity. And I think by the end, with this uh, vision, this kind of vision of reversal takes away that room for me. Mm, I, I could see that, but I mean, I disagree. I think the, the appeal of the island film is a sort of strip down of some overthinking of societal um, 
uh, definitely class dynamics, but um, all, all kinds of other things. But I think we can all agree that um, the, 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 the peak scene is that wonderful dining scene and like that uh, with the, and, and I just want to give a shout out to the Foley artist, the yes. sound effects <laughs> for the, the, that, that dining scene, the slurping of the oysters and truly the eating of like fan, of fine dining, like emulsions and foams really brilliant like right. really specific and i thought was just wonderful and i know that there was another film where you were very impressed with the sounds of eating and maybe yeah. you want to talk about that a little bit yeah honestly like that's a food food and film is a is a is a real interest of mine and it can be a pet peeve of mine if there's like an a a film a food a historical inaccuracy i'm out <laughs> Like I just can't. I'm I'm out of the film. I uh -huh. like I cannot watch it anymore. And um and um and so yeah, I definitely am interested in food and film. And I and I thought that the sounds um in my favorite film so far at the festival, Crimes of the Future, Cronenberg's film of him eating these like mm. really disgusting like sloppy him trying to eat. And you know, in the film, in the end, is is about. That character, um, Saul Tesler, is that yeah, his name? Saul Tenser. Tenser, Saul Tenser, trying to eat. Like the yeah. whole film is about him trying to find fuel. And I thought that it was really, truly, the uh, really a really personal film about an older artist. And it's so interesting because I think that um, it was, I, I believe this film they were trying to make like 20 years ago yeah. with his producer, Robert Lantos, who he did. Um, existence and crash with which are very similar in some mm. ways and um, I think it's so I can't imagine the film 20 years ago because it's so much about an older man like the the gosh Viggo Mortensen's performances performances like you know just the the pains and trying to eat and digest and it's a remarkable performance of pain yes yeah. and then yet still with the libido but yeah. you know n n but now needing toys yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so i think i think it was really i and i know you've talked about this as well uh this film but it was just i found it i can't wait to see it again i just found it so remarkable actually quite new and so so funny like yeah. his funniest film yet and i think he's said directly to me and to others that all of his films are comedies but this one just went full on and yeah of course I don't know if you guys had the ex experience in the theater of like not everyone was laughing and then the, but the few corners that were laughing were just dying losing it I <laughs> was I mean I was in that corner um I I think that even in the way that he performs pain and um when he's sort of grimacing trying to get down soft food the way that he's wheezing and hawking and rasping and breathing so heavily is, as you say, a really a, a performance with some resonances for Cronenberg, but it's also very funny and exaggerated, and everything is underlined in a sort of cool remove. This episode of the Film Comment Podcast is brought to you by Kimston, presenting The Sugua Diaries, an official selection at the Cannes and New York Film Festivals, opening this Friday, May 27th, at Film at Lincoln Center. A wistful sunny antidote to lockdown blues, Maureen Fazendiero and Miguel Gomez's lyrical summer tale blurs the line between cinema and life. Lovingly shot in sumptuous 16mm, the film follows three friends passing time in a spacious farmhouse where days are filled with dancing, chores, and hatching butterflies as part of a reverse cinematic lockdown film diary.
New York Times critic Manola Dargis declared the Sugua Diaries to be unexpectedly moving, writing, I can't wait to see it again. I mean, the technology that he's using that enables him, purportedly enables him to eat without pain is itself so funny. He's sitting on like a skeletal throne. Like it's like a throne made of bones. And there's, you know, there's like something that resembles a skull behind his head and it's like controlling his neck. It's all very ridiculous to see him try to do mundane tasks using these gadgets. Almost Tashlin-esque, you're making me realize. Like some of those scenes, like really kind of Jerry Lewis-y kind of kind of kind of stuff i mean it's also sort of like a it's it has it has vague gestures of sentience like the way that the bones sort of move like a quizzical raised eyebrow Mm -hmm. that make it seem like a domestic robot in like a 50s or 60s like family sci-fi show like lost in space or the jetsons or something that they it's just his little it's just his little chair friend his little chair friend with a mind of its own and so many of the performances seem post-human um i think that there there is a sort of He's you a, mean not human in the classical sense? Not human in the classical sense. To quote I, the film. <laughs> I think that there is, yeah, well, there is a sort of, um, a word I use in my, and when I wrote about the film is a sort of animatronic quality to mm. a lot of the performances. Mm. I mean, even the actors who were fighting really hard, like Kristen Stewart and Leah Seydoux are sort of, because they're all of different nationalities and different accents and different performance styles, they're sort of this liminal quality to to the to the film and to humanity in general and there's a there's an affect in the film that i think seems potentially um post-human which i think is interesting as like an international pro uh, co-production from an aging artist um trying to sort of scare up funding for um this script that he's had kicking around for decades and going all the way to all the way to a Greek tax shelter to finally Mm -hmm. make this movie, that there is a sort of sense of decay and decline and curiosity about what comes next. But he also has an interest in globalization, right? So I think a lot of that also comes from trying to imagine not just a post-human world, but a world where globalization has reached some sort of later stage. And some might imagine that world as very homogenized and... You know, he a, imagines it as more more liminal and it disembodied. Disembodied, yes, but also it's sort of a place where difference is coexisting without dissolving. And I, I, I think that's that was very interesting to me. How do you say? It, how do you think it's disembodied? I can't think of anything in Cronenberg that's disembodied. Well, that's well, that's what I, what I think the iron. That's what I think the irony is of it is is that he is. Um, that there are sort of that local particularities are on the one hand being mis- being mixed matched together, but on the other hand, there's this real. Grody... I, I don't think it's disembodied. I think it's decontextualized. Yeah, and I think and the body is the first context. So I do think that that's something that he's. I do think that that's something that he's playing with. I think also if you look at Cosmopolis, which uses the metaphor of a car ride through the city as a way to explore extremely sleek high-tech spaces and extremely impoverished uh, gritty spaces. That, And I think that in this film, too, where there are these very expensive new, new devices, um, and they seem to be the only things that work, but everybody is still living in light. There's, everything is rusted. Everything is a mess except for these new machines. So there is a certain... So there's a certain duality and inequality in this vision of the future and the and the context of the body is sort of a grounding force 
um, for things that are spinning off in, a, in very diverse directions. Actually, the machines are already quite retro, I think, in the film. So that that's interesting. And there is a sort of like, I think, as you mentioned, a sort of hilarious kind of uh, time building, world building kind of retroness with the bones. But um, I also, um, yeah, and, and I think what, something we haven't touched on, and I'm not sure if you did with Justin, but like the humiliating contests of the artist, you know, the inner beauty contest. And yeah. I just feel like that's so what you talk about, his talk shelter and not making a film mm -hmm. in eight years, these like humiliating contests that, a, uh, that an artist must go through. And the bureaucratic uh, hoops that they must jump There's to, which I talked about with him a little bit today. Yeah. I was just struck yeah. by the question of bureaucracy that comes up in the film and, yeah. you know, about what gets funding and... And the bad art. Sexier, <laughs> the I wrote bad down, art. I wrote down sexier means easier funding. Yes. That's that's a good that's that, that elicited some some laughs Knowing and also chuckles. also this idea mm. of like regist turning registration into art you know there's a lot of questions like that I was wondering I just came to mind did either of you see Will of the Wisp no yes just now this morning okay great I saw it last night and everything we're talking about I so I was thinking what other movie is like genuinely funny and I laughed so hard it's very funny it's so funny it also has to do with the body in completely different ways but body and aging and desire and uh, maybe you could Talk a little bit about it, Mark, and this, introduce us. Yeah, this is uh, Joao Pedro Rodriguez, director of To Die Like a Man, the ornithologist, etc., the Portuguese director. This is his 67-minute musical fantasy, I believe, as, as yeah. the title card says, uh, which begins in the year 2069 uh, as, a, as a member of the Portuguese aristocracy lays dying uh, uh, fartingly. And King then, Alfredo, I believe. Uh, yeah, before yeah. flashing back to the present day, a time much like our own, uh -huh. um, in which, um, this, in th which this dying man, um, tried to, um, break away from his, uh, legacy of inequality and colonialism and hidebound bourgeois morality, um, by becoming a fireman so that he could save the, fo so that he could save the trees, the trees, which are in danger of wildfires from climate change. But instead of becoming i guess in by but instead of like waging ecotage he becomes a fireman yeah because you, you got to put out those fires and in this and once he becomes a fireman he is sort of initiated into this into the into the strange and erotic world of the firehouse um in which um all of these beefcake fireman's calendar and types. And jock straps. And jock straps, yeah. yeah, are sort of, they're all posing. Great himbo movie, Miriam. A great, yeah. You must watch it. I love this director. Yeah. I can't believe it wasn't on my schedule. I can catch it on yeah, Friday, I, so I'm great going to. Great himbo movie, but keep going, but yeah, Mark, So they're, yeah. they're all posing as if, then they have the, they have the, the um, pliant yet supple musculature of classical statuary, but much bigger dicks. <laughs> and which... Comes up in the movie, you might say. So, comes up, huh? I don't want to give everything away. <laughs> I'm punning. You didn't even get the innuendo. I, I know. I, I think we all got the innuendo. Okay, fine. Uh, there's, fine. Um, no one acknowledged it. And there's my a come shot in this be movie. Acknowledged on the film <laughs> comment podcast. Okay. There, so, um, there is a there is a relationship that he strikes up with uh, with his with his fireman mentor, um, who is who is black, he's white. Yeah. And so it becomes also this sort of reconciliate, this way of reconciling 
um, the legacy of Portuguese colonialism. I disagree. I don't think it reconciles. It and I, it, there is no reconciliation there. I'm going to confess that I saw a little bit of the inside of my eyelids during this movie. Oh, God. So <laughs> I, was a, I was awake for the hand stuff, but... Um, the what? The hand the, stuff. The there hand is, stuff, Miriam. I heard you. The there stuff. is a hand stuff set piece that um, is is. I, I I still don't know what to make of it. So it's them basically having sex, performing sex acts in a forest. But while they're doing that, they're exchanging racial epithets or racial words. So they it's sort of like kind of like role playing but not quite role-playing because they're just saying these words. They're not really performing anything. And they're basically calling each other sort of accusatory words. So um, like cannibal, colonizer, and they just get more and more absurd and funny and sometimes dark. And it's just so provocative and just extremely funny. But it's not a reconciliation. It's not like meeting on equal terms. It's not resolving colonialism in any way it's kind of I think making this you know it's pointing out how like in the field of desire these things become perverted and playful but that doesn't necessarily change anything but the movie does have a fan like sort of a fantasy ending where there is some sort of upending of the social order well it's it's a it's a it's a subversive ideal within within the Within the flow of within the flow of history, which is only ever which is only ever going one way, um, and yeah, so there is, and, but it has a very happy ending. Yes, which is not, because it is because it is COVID a COVID fanti- themed ending too. A very co- yeah, yeah, and it it, it 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 and it's nice that it has a happy ending because it recognizes that in our subversive playfulness, in our refusal of the world as it is. That that's an that 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 is an affirmative and hopeful act, yeah. and so it's a very, it's a very positive thing that also just has like a dick slideshow. It does have a dick slideshow, uh, a very long dick slideshow, and a, a really uh, which the the set piece is that uh, Afonso, the fireman, is showing the prince a slideshow of dicks, and he has to I guess say what each dick what what which forest it looks like yeah yeah sounds very intriguing yes and and the, it's a the beautiful answers... tribute to the to the to the natural landscape of portugal yes and, and to other natural landscapes mm-hmm. um and it's just it is it's just hilarious you know it's completely absurd but it's so uh funny in this like very specific way that's full of cultural references and really you know even when i was saying earlier it's about like this field of desire where you, things can be overturned even if not in the real world but this is a film in which sexuality and the sex act feels like a realm of complete possibility and it's just fun it's fun to see that unfold and to you know I, you know we're we're talking about movies which are also very pleasurable but where sexuality feels more fraught and you know blurred with pain and all of that and here it's genuinely a field where you can be anything even and imagine the, anything and even yeah, the a dick can be a forest and yeah even the subtitles are be, are very well translated because there's a lot of there's a lot of puns in it um <laughs> the um yes. the name of the the name of the of the of the black portuguese fireman um is translated as collier as in like a guy who shovels coals so there's just a sort of like 
playful inclusivity and a desire to sort of be in on the joke that extends even to the way in which this film is going to be presented to people who don't speak Portuguese and who speak English. So they like the French and English subtitles, which you see one on top of the other here at Cannes, I think are both translated with an eye towards making um, the very Portuguese, the very playful use of Portuguese in the film seem accessible and yeah inclusive yeah, yeah. the sort of playful and inclusivity very, the, in that intentionality to make sure the humor translates like that everyone gets that this is a very funny and cleverly funny film mm-hmm. uh, and there's some great dance sequences I should just mention it is a musical fantasy there's choreographed dancing uh, and some great singing some great singing <laughs> great singing a glued. wonderful song about trees and how they're our friends and we should treat them better. And I'm just nodding my head like a bobblehead. Yeah. Like, absolutely. <laughs> we we have been unfair to the trees. It sounds like there's not much to dislike about this film. I mean, I, yeah, yeah the, the trees give us so much. Like, they're a place to cruise. They're, they make oxygen. <laughs> um, yeah, no. The, they're tall. They're tall. Sometimes thick. They're full of sap. Yeah. 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 Oh so, uh, so I, I saw another comedy this yes, morning. Let's, so let's let's. Um, okay. I saw, but it, not as successful, I think, as either of these, um, as or any of these three that we've mentioned. Um, I saw The Innocent, uh, directed mm. by Louis Garrel and is starring Louis Garrel. Louis Garrel is a himbo. absolutely a himbo, right? Absolutely a himbo. Okay, He's the French himbo. Okay, good. He is one of my favorite stories of seeing a Q&A was watching your colleague Florence yeah. interview him um, in New York once and he had his scarf wrapped around his head and she said do you want to take that off on stage and he grabbed it and said no it helps to keep the thoughts in <laughs> he's, he's the French himbo and I feel like he has in direct he's a director he's been directing mm-hmm. and I feel like he is um this was this the innocent was not a good film it was um it was a mess it was it, it was a farce um it was also a family drama uh but it, and it was also a romantic comedy but it was very enjoyable and it brought out wonderful performances in noemi um merlin and um uh Oh, uh, what is her name? Um, a new Green- Greenberg who was in, um, uh, I think had been in his father's f- films. Mm. Uh, I can no yeah. longer hear the guitar. And, um, and uh, you know, and, and really him, he really knows how to direct himself better than any other director, maybe other than maybe Christophe Honoré. And, um, and I think that he's, you know, it's a, just a pure kind of rom-com-y farce thing. And I think um, I was, I, you know, his father is a great director, Philippe Carell, and I think he is the sort of Nick Cassavetes to John Cassavetes <laughs> of Philippe Carell, you know, of to his father. But he's also the Ryan Gosling, like you know, uh, mm-hmm. Nick Cassavetes directed The Notebook, but he yeah. can also play the the main role. And I think there's something wonderful about that, and certainly something himboish about that. So, what is The Innocent about, though? Maybe you can tell us a little sure, bit. Sure, The Innocent yeah. is about someone whose mother, uh, it, Louis Garrel's mother, works with. Um, she's a former actress and works with. Um, uh, with uh, people in prison and marries um, uh, a prisoner and Louis Garrel freaks out about it and there's um, a heist and the, he, uh, love happens with his best friend and all of these kind of things and um, it's uh, but it, it, I really do think it, he's he he really knows his strengths and knows 
how to be um yeah it's just really a pure rom-com and great with actors um but yeah louis garel is definitely french himbo and i um i think he's got several projects here is that right he does also i hadn't he's i wasn't in the marcello for he, one. he's in yeah. the he's in the wonderful scarlet i actually just re- i didn't know the premise of that movie um his mother brigitte sai uh louis uh, Phil- uh louis garel's mom um did in fact um, was in fact a prison educator who fell in love with an inmate. Okay, and well because a, it was dedicated to her and made a film about it. Oh, okay, it's which de- played in New York a number of years ago and is not a rom com. Oh, okay, it, it was dedicated oh, okay. to her, and so I wondered. Yeah, no, that's that's the, this is the second movie about um, Brigitte Sai falling in love with an inmate. That's really oh. now I'm not to see the full, but yeah, this one, but it, hers was not a, a farce and a heist movie and a rom com. No, no, it was not. <laughs> Uh, um, it's fascinating. All right. Um, he also is in his ex Valeria Bruni Tedeschi's film, uh, Les Amandières in French, um, Forever Young in English, which is a good title, um, a very aspirational, risking, cheesy title. This is my favorite movie of Cannes, and nobody else, to my knowledge, likes it. I have not yet met a single other person who likes this film. I think it's a brave stance. I think it's a brave stance. It's I'm I'm staking. I'm buying. I'm buying low. I'm buying so low. <laughs> This is the penny stock of the can competition, and I am, I am. We're going to the. I am holding to the moon. We are. We are rocketing this all the way to the all the way to the Palm d'Or, and you. Uh, and yeah, me and I'm. They're going to invite me up on stage with them when they accept it, um, because I'm the only one who likes it. It's uh, this is um, Valeria Bruni Tedeschi uh, went in the '80s to an acting school at uh, Les Amandières, the theater, the the theater, the sort of theater run at the time by Patricia Rowe. Louis Garrel plays Patricia Rowe in a sort of like coked up, excitable, handsy, not a particularly flattering performance of this great French artist. Um, but it's about, it's this autobiographical film about this um, class of a dozen or so young actors who in, in the 80s are going to the school. So there's wonderful sort of um, 80s grain to the to the film. And it starts at a at really high energy with these really funny... Uh, audition scenes where the actor, where the kids are just acting, the the auditions are so funny. All like the all the directors are like laughing through them as they're as they're as they're doing it. Um, they're like pouring ketchup all over each other to do like scenes from Shakespeare, bloody scenes from Shakespeare, um, and everything is life or death. Um, there is a certain like energy to it, which could be which could which could potentially be described as Cassavetes and just in the sense that there's always like a sense of like somebody conducting and pushing and the and this energy swells up and drops back down and the cutting is sort of very choppy it cuts out all of the low all of the low energy moments I should say that a lot of people I wish I should say that this movie is potentially extremely grating which I like because these are irritating people and they're irritating exuberant people who love who just love life and love acting I've been sort of I've taken an interest recently in a phenomenon called actor brain, which is basically just like that pretending is so powerful. You guys, <laughs> have you ever pretended so hard that something became real? Um, and so these kids are pretending so hard the entire movie and they're trying to have these great big feelings and they haven't had any life experience yet. So they're trying to have it. And at the same time that they're trying to embody it. And the, and the beauty of this movie is the way in which they, by the end of the film, they have had, the life experience that they were so hungry for at the end. Um, there's that bit in um, in Charlie Kaufman's Synecdoche, New York, where uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman is directing like a 
20 something in as Willie Loman in Death of the Salesman and says something like the tragedy of a young man playing Willie Loman is that there's no way he can actually know that this is exactly what the world will do to him soon enough. And I thought of that a lot during this. Um, it's a film about um, being like a naive posh girl in love with a heroin addict, much like The Souvenir. It's a film about trying to put on a Chekhov play, much like Drive My Car. And I think um, it's just a really... I think you're doing a disservice, Mark, by invoking those. <laughs> what did to you... those film, um, I mean, yeah. I, I, I like it better than both of them. Oh, God. So, oh, Devika... Mark, Mark. <laughs> I'm getting a sense that you disagree, Devika. I disagree strongly. I mean, I don't mind this film. I It was funny. It was actually better than I expected because there is always these kinds of French movies about young actors at an acting school most of them if not all are white it you know is gives makes me a bit wary because these like I've seen a lot of like insular films about you know young artists in that way and it's actually like Mark said it has a a, quite a surprising uh, sense of rhythm it's fleet-footed um I love what you said about actor brain because that does describe these people really well. And some of the gags are great, like gags involving their rehearsals and these outsized personalities and their histrionics, you know, um, it's a great little uh, set piece involving AIDS and them realize them trying to figure out who could have inve- infected whom because it's just this extremely incestuous um, little place. Um, but First of all, I have to say it. there are so many beats that match those of the souvenir. I mean, she's this young artist who falls in love with this like toxic sort of abusive heroin addict who at one point robs her and tries to pass it off as a robbery, you know, and... I don't want to fully give away the ending, but really some of the beats are so uncannily taken from the souvenir that then I can't help but compare the two films. Well, that just might be what it's like to date a heroin addict. You know, someone else said this. <laughs> someone else that I was talking to said, like, but that's how addicts are. Yes, but it's there's other things, too. I mean, there's the thing about, like, being in this artistic milieu and trying to, you know, create something while this other thing is taking up your energy, your creative and personal energy. And, there, uh, Miriam, there are, like, very specific things, events that feel mirrored and I'm not saying like oh this is plagiarism it just makes it very hard for me not to look at the better film which I'm sorry Mark mm-hmm. but how could you the souvenir is I mean I, I I think I find the two souvenir films brilliant and also because I think that they think about privilege and the director's own privilege in a way that is maybe is not forced or um, overly moralistic but aware kind of aware of what it meant maybe at that age to come from this environment and then to try to make art and you know this a, a discourse that's completely missing from this movie which is maybe fine because it's it's supposed it's like kind of ridiculous it's not at all serious or naturalistic or realistic but it just feels slight by the end there's great gags but at the end i don't think it's trying to say anything about art or the world and if that thing about them being irritable and grating works in the beginning, the end is so solemn and sincere. And at that point, I feel like we are meant to care about these people and this great tragedy that has befallen them. But I simply cannot care about these people who have only annoyed me for over like an hour and a half. I think that's what that's what youth is. It's about being so annoying. Uh, and I think that like at the end, I think that's, I think like, by the end of the film, um, 
somebody has basically come out on the other side of her youth and didn't even know that that's what she was in when it was happening. And it is also, the ending is also very actor brain. Like it is about, it is about conjuring the specters of your past. Um, it, and it's about, it's about method acting too. It's about the, it's about the sort of pretensions, the pretensions as of method acting as practiced by some of its practitioners. And it's about the idea of, of drawing from yourself and cannibalizing yourself and being a sort of pseudo intellectual idea that like you need that an artist needs life experience and the degree to which they go out and chase it. And it's about ultimately trying to sort of to find ways of, of, of sort of conjuring a past for yourself to channel. I found really, I didn't see any of this in the movie. I I just want to say this is very thrilling to me because (laughs) what's been missing for me at this can is really divisive films. Um, (laughs) Usually I haven't really hated anything and that's very unusual and I feel like there's some usually something I love and something I hate there's only one film I've loved the Cronenberg and there's nothing I've really hated but yeah this is very exciting to now I want to see this film because I feel like that's the essence of Ken is like Maps of the Stars these films that are totally divisive and so thank you both for for, for bringing <laughs> for some of that. Of, yeah, of disagreement. What a discussion! Actor brains, himbos, food emulsions, all of the good stuff. Miriam, I do want to hear you talk about Don Juan because, uh, speaking of divisive films. Oh yeah, well I'll talk about it. Um, sure. I I yeah, Don Juan has. I've heard some negative reactions to it. It's a Don Juan is a musical. Um, about a um, an actor playing the role of Don Juan, who perhaps has been a sort of Don Juan in his life, and is about to um, marry someone uh, played by uh, um, uh, Virginie Efira, and uh, and then she sees him like checking out a woman uh, just before they're about to get married, and she ditches it. She ditches the wedding. She was like, "He's still a Don Juan. I get it. It's never going to stop." So he sees her everywhere. Um, he goes on in his life and every, and it's, uh, Virginia Ephra and these very, uh, terrible wigs, um, in each playing these roles. And, um, in the end, uh, she can play many roles. Um, and, uh, and I'm, I'm a sucker for a film about all women as actresses and he can only play the role of Don Juan, but it's very, it's a, it's a musical and it's quite. Oh, golly, it's mature. It's a really mature love story, I thought. I thought it was quite sad about um, regrets. And so much is expressed, I think, in the music. And I found it, I saw it twice, and I I found it quite something new. And I found that also with the, the Cronenberg. By the ending of the Cronenberg and the ending of this, I was um, moved and felt like I had seen a slightly new form and that's what I look for but I'm I think a lot of people are maybe not I I think uh um yeah I think of uh I think I think musicals are a hard sell for some people except for La La Land (laughs) Mm. and Will of the the Wisp and Will of the Wisp I don't know I don't know why people don't like it why don't people like it Um, musicals maybe musical I think it's also because um, it's very simple. It's very mm. simple. Serge Bozon is a is a filmmaker. Uh, full disclosure, he's also a friend. He's a mm. critic. 
um, but he's um, he's very interested in some of these B movies that I these sort of like simple pre code or not not so much pre code, but he like more forties and fifties like very simple films. And this movie could not be simpler in its form, and yet I just found it. Um, yeah, I found it. It's about he. I I just found it very uh, uh, moving and. Um, uh, and, uh, I would recommend it. I think mm-hmm. people are thrown off by the simplicity perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, 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 I would say it's the other film I enjoyed the most aside from Crimes of the Future. Well, Miriam, you're kind of really selling it. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm going to have to check it out and then see if, you know, you're trustworthy. I, well, I, I, we know I'm not. Well, <laughs> we know that. We've known that. <laughs> I mean, you know, my taste can be a bit, you know, uh, not quite the norm. But I think, I mean, I, I trust Serge Bozon as a critic as much as a filmmaker. And um, I think he sees some, you know, he's always trying to do something new. And this really, I'll just say, like, as far as we talked about rom-coms, mm. and I will say as far as, like, a mature kind of love and regret that I feel now that I'm not in my 20s or early 30s or, you know, that I I felt it really resonated. Mm. So, um, and that was also very interesting for me. So, um, yeah, I would I would recommend it. And I think it's interesting that um, both the Louis Grail film and this film were not in competition. They're in this new can premieres, which I think is a chance to have, you know, some of their favorite actors on stage and, you know, included um, and things that are about to get a big release. But perhaps it's also a chance to have quite strange films that don't make it quite in competition because it is a strange film, but in a wonderful way. So, um, yeah, I recommend uh, like um, I think that's a a good thing uh, to add some of the because I feel like the films in competition can be, at this point, maybe a little boring. And a very festival film-ish. You know, there's some of them have this gravity. And yes. uh, maybe we'll talk about them on a later podcast. Some that we saw in the last couple of days have this very, like, this is an important film sort of weight that seems to, um, does sometimes lend itself to sort of more boring, formal, or cinematic yeah. Uh, approaches. Um, I'm looking forward to the Claire Denis, but it's yeah. insane that it's her first film in competition. Mm. I think is it her first film in competition? I think Chocolat may have been in competition. Is that true? I, I think, think it was. I think no. I think that I'm hearing no, and I I really keep like uh, I've, I've, I I I'm we we can confirm at some point but i believe that i believe this is her first film in competition mm. which is bizarre considering how many films she's done and and quite some of them quite her recent films have been so interesting i think um so yeah i think uh the can competition could use a new bit of a blood infusion uh-huh. i think um well i think we're Pretty much out of uh, time. I know we have places to be, but Mark, did you want to, you had a title you wanted to shout out quickly. Is that? I can do a quick, I can do, I can speed read through Sick of Myself. Yeah. Okay. This is um, in in certain regard. This is the first feature film by Christopher Borgley, a Norwegian director who's also worked in America and made the um, Vimeo staff pick uh, short, uh, former cult member here's music for the first time which is a very mean-spirited huh. funny film um sick of myself starts um a lot like worst person in the world and we're like oh this is a genre already um it's oslo it's late summer and and, and the, the light it's still sunny at like 
11 or 12. And this millennial is sort of in a rut. Um, she has a, a, a more successful artist boyfriend and is sort of isolated at this gallery opening. There are moments of inventiveness, words on screen, uh, sort of quick cuts and sort of flights of directorial fancy. Um, um, but it's a bit of a bait and switch because to go along with her professional insecurities um, uh, and everybody's sort of like low level um, arts adjacent narcissism and passive aggression and career orientation, um, she takes it a little bit further and develops basically Munchausen syndrome. She is reading the she is reading on about this um, with a recalled uh, Russian anti, obscure Russian tranquilizer antidepressant uh, that. Um, has the side effect of making you break out in a horrific rash. So she buys some on the dark web to give herself a rash that will make her stand out <laughs> from all of her friends. Um, at its, I mean, at its potential worst, I think this is like a a Sundance movie, probably co-written by Lena Dunham, and oh. like that everybody, that every actress under 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 thirty two in Hollywood would be like trying to like line up to read for to work to do at scale um and get like a couple of good press cycles out of it um the norwegian actress who's in it is um she's perfect she has a sort of like appealing shyness and but also a total unearned arrogance that she like has to project through makeup that makes her look at times like by the end of the film like jeff goldblum like let's say 30 40 <laughs> minutes into the fly um well i think when this film is strongest is um Borley, the director has a lot of experience in branded content um, and in making sort of shorts and working through it like in a lot of, let's say, vice media adjacent spaces. And that's what um, a former cult member here is music for the first time is about. It's about this really oblivious, narcissistic um, shoot where they're trying to make like a really sensitive documentary about this former cult member who's hearing about to hear music for the first time and stuff goes wrong um, because it's an indie film set. Um, so I think that at its best, this is, um, becomes a fair, there's a lot of, there are a lot of details from this world. There are good, there's good jokes. There's good, there's a good photo. There's a good photo shoot scene. There's good jokes about, um, unisex clothes with inclusive sizing and, uh, that say like inspirational words on like sweatpants. Um, everybody is wearing like shirts and caps and baggy sweatshirts that say like can and sorbonne and pa paris fashion week and why and ysl it's a very like it's a very like it's a very like bucket hat hipster bucket hat milieu um and at, at its best i think this is a film about that's a sort of full-fledged like a satire of of personal branding mm. and the sort of um the narrative that you build for yourself um and the sort of pressures and delusions um at and in this case grotesqueries of building this personal narrative for yourself um and i think the tone is reasonably mean-spirited which is nice mm -hmm. it's fairly provocative i'm not sure that it's 100 percent successful all the way through but i think it has a nice like has a, it has a it, it is it has it has a bite to it mm. um so that's sick of myself fair description yes I think that sounds very fair. I'd love something with a little bite to it. Um, I have, <laughs> I have to say, Mark, we just fact-checked the Claire Denis question, and you were right. And I'm wrong. Chocolat was in competition. You win. You win the Film Comment Podcast Prize. I, I would like to thank 
myself for looking this up earlier when I was including <laughs> this fact in one of my dispatches. Um, so thank you to me for my foresight. I couldn't have done it without me. <laughs> and thank you to you for coming on the Film Comment podcast and you, Miriam. It's been such, I know we've all been so busy and it's just very nice to be just sit and talk to you both about movies for an hour. It's been an absolute delight. It's been so nice to, to talk to you both. And we'll do this again sometime, hopefully. And good luck on your last couple days of Cannes. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Tevika. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com. Winner of the Cannes Director's Fortnite Award for Best Film, Akiara is the stunning new thriller from acclaimed Italian director Jonas Carpignano. When her father goes missing, 16-year-old Chiara takes it upon herself to track him down at all costs. But as Chiara gets closer to the truth and the crime syndicates that control her city, she is forced to decide how far she is willing to go. Critics call the film an original and powerful coming-of-age story. Akiara opens exclusively in theaters starting May 27th. More details at cinemamadeinitaly.com.